Podcast One production. This is episode three of Lost at Sea. The crew of the Nocturne was forced to abandon the cabin cruiser after being hit by a heavy storm off the northern New South Wales coast. Their chances of rescue were slim and rested on whether Mayday calls had been received and whether rescuers could get there in time. Harry Handicott believed in routine and duty. He'd been a commando in World War II in Papua New Guinea, so he brought a military attitude to his work as a lighthouse keeper. From 1973 to 84, Harry was the keeper of the light at Smoky Cape at Kempsey. The lighthouse stands on a granite bluff 110 metres above sea level, making its light the highest in New South Wales. In the mid-70s, an aerial was installed and the lighthouse had radio communications for the first time since World War II. It was that radio mast and Harry Handicott that gave the crew of the Nocturne a slim chance at survival. Handicott never slept more than a few hours at a stretch, especially during wild weather, like on that morning of September 24th, 1979. So he was up when the Mayday call came through at 4am. Smoky Cape is nearly 300 kilometres south of Evans Head, yet Handicott was the only person who reported hearing the Mayday calls. He tried to communicate with the female voices he heard over the radio, but they couldn't hear him. Receiving your vessel Nocturne, please confirm your location. Getting no reply from the Nocturne, Handicott then radioed the Sydney Water Police and the message was relayed to Coffs Harbour Police. Okay, I'm Paul Craggs. I joined the police in uh, 1966. In 1969, I commenced working in Water Police. I transferred from Sydney to Coffs Harbour in uh, 1979. I was qualified as a uh, coxswain and I was in charge at Coffs Harbour Water Police at the time of the incident. At 5am, the police launch Stackpool left Coffs Harbour headed for the reported location of the Nocturne, 10 miles off Evans Head. Senior Constable Paul Craggs was at the helm with two crew on board. I wasn't aware of what the weather was outside, you know. We just boarded the boat with what we had, expecting to be back in that night. And we left at 5 o'clock by the time I got our crew together and we went outside through the entrance to Coffs Harbour and we realised then how big the sea was because it was starting to build really big there. And uh, then we just got out into the ocean and these huge waves were just motoring up to the north. It would take them nearly four hours to reach the Nocturne's reported position. Three fishing trawlers from Evans Head were already searching those waters. As they left Coffs Harbour, Craggs began hearing the mayday calls over his radio. Well, we just heard a very faint mayday, 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 and we had a radio direction finder, but we were nowhere near close enough to get a direction on it. We didn't have, in those days, the navigation equipment that was able to pinpoint location. So you've got to bear in mind the weather, the distance, and uh, their competence in gauging their 10 miles off Evans Head. Leaving Coffs, conditions were bad. 
35 knot winds and 20 foot swells and getting worse. Stackpole was only a 45 foot vessel like the Nocturne, but it was steel hulled and purpose built for sea rescue. It could take a lot of punishment. Well, the boat we had was 45 foot and it was about 30 tonne, so we had a fairly substantial boat and it was very broad in the stern and it handled it well. The trip north, even though it was very rough, was pretty uneventful. The Stackpole, it had a cruising speed of about 14 knots, was max. But we were sitting on uh, on the swells and we were doing speeds of 20 plus knots, just surfing. We were just going as a big surfboard. So the ride wasn't too bad. I'd only just left Sydney. We got some really bad weather down there, but this is just out open nothing. And I hadn't uh, really acclimatised to that yet, but it it happened very quickly. I did. (laughs) This was nothing like I could ever compare that I'd ever been in or ever uh, consider that I would ever be in again. I'd never seen anything like it. Craggs wondered how the crew was going to get any survivors from the Nocturne into their boat in these atrocious conditions. Because the boat was being thrown around so badly, if we got close to anybody and hit them with our boat, we'd kill them. Even if they tried to come over the stern, we we had a big stern uh, duckboard on the back. If that hit somebody, it'd kill them. So we were working out how we could get our life raft off and uh, we were going to deploy that if we found people in the water so that they had some chance of getting in the life raft. And if they were in the water, the chances of finding them alive would be remote. Still, the mayday calls from the nocturne kept coming until 6.10am when they ceased. At about 9am, when Stackpool reached the waters 10 miles east of Evans Head, they found nothing. No one in the water and no trace of the nocturne. There was nothing there and of course the radio transmissions had stopped. We hadn't heard anything. But on the way up there, we had our radar on and a couple of times when we were on the crests of uh, some of these big waves, I'd picked up a return signal a couple of times and we plotted it and had a fair idea of where it was. We had discerned it from sea clutter, which is the waves that were breaking on the top of the swells, and it was a definite signal. So you were pretty hopeful that that would be the nocturne? Well, that's the only thing I could have put it down to. You know, radio calls have been put out everywhere and the weather was absolutely horrendous. So you're you're thinking, well, maybe there's nothing else here. It can only be that. Crags dashed for that location eight miles north. Before they reached there, the signal disappeared off the screen. This may have been the moment that the nocturne sank. The wind had increased to 60 knots and the swells were at least 30 feet high now. The boat was constantly awash. Visibility was down to 100 metres. The three trawlers had headed for the safety of Evans Head long before. The stack pool was the last vessel on the ocean looking for the nocturne. Craggs was told that if he wanted to get back into port that night, he had to come now. It's always a concern when you're in that sort of weather, but we were still concerned for the people that had sent to Mayday and we were still able to continue the search. I didn't have any um, false misgivings about the safety of our boat, but I, I wasn't worried that it was going to founder because it was a very strong boat. In that sea condition, it's probably one of the best boats we could have had for the job. Well, they advised us if we didn't come in then, we'd have been out there for the rest of the night. And I didn't want to do that with the weather the way it was and just be stuck out there in the dark because you can't see what's going to come and hit you. We'd 
turned south a couple of times to try and do a bit of a grid search, and we did. But travelling south, which is where we'd have to go to get back into Evans Head, it was just horrendous. You didn't make much progress. And when they said that if we didn't come in now, the tide would have turned by the time we got there and it would be impossible to cross the bar. Because even getting back into Evans Head was pretty perilous. Oh, well, I could never, ever forget it. Like I said, our boat was 45 foot. And as we turned south, and you'd have to pick your time to turn south too without getting hit by a big wave, we'd come about and I recall the first section of the wave that we turned into, you'd go up a big rounded section. And I remember looking out to the stern of the boat and it was already on the wave. It wasn't in the trough anymore. And then we got over the rounded bit and it just went straight up for about another 20 feet. And then there was a huge white water overcapping the top, which we had to push through. That was on every wave. And when we pushed through that, then there was a steep decline on the other side and we just fell straight back down into a trough uh, that was more than 45 foot down and uh, just throttle off and go to the bottom. The boat had come back up and then you just put it full throttle and go up over the next one. You know, you might be showing you're doing 20 knots, but you're only doing about two, if you get my drift. Crossing the bar, when we got to the staging point, we were totally in the hands of the fellas up on the headland who were guiding us in. And he said, just stay where you are, stay where you are. He said, when I tell you to go, he said, just go towards the west from where you are. He said, and then you'll see the rock wall at the entrance. And he said, just give it everything you got and pick the wave that I tell you and um, hopefully everything goes good. Well, that's what we had to do. And we caught this big wave. We surfed over the bar on it and got in. And he said, when I tell you to go, go don't look back. And anyway, I did. And all I could see was this mountain of water behind me pushing us through. And it didn't break, thank God. The stack pool made it into Evans Head at 1 o'clock p.m., having left the search area just after 10. Paul Craggs was relieved to be home. He and the crew were battered after seven hours on that horrendous sea, and the job wasn't done. That was 100% in our mind. That was the reason we were there. And we're thinking, you know, what's happened? Where are they? Have they all perished? Have some survived and they're still in the water, you know? But there was just nothing else we could have done. We'd searched the area that we thought they were in. We'd passed all the information we had on to see rescue and the police, and they were in contact with the aircraft that were searching as well. The aircraft couldn't find them, and there was one chance in probably 100 million that we'd ever find them. So that's in the back of your mind, and knowing what the weather was like and what the sea was like, you're thinking if anybody has survived, I'd have hated to have been in the water out there, I can tell you. The Air Force had a P-3 Orion aircraft up searching in the area. Craggs had passed on the location of the faint radar echo that had flashed across his screen, then disappeared at 9.30am. An Iroquois helicopter was standing by at Evans Head if anything was spotted. If this took much longer, sadly, they'd be searching for bodies. It was just a guessing game because nothing had been sighted, no persons had been sighted, no wreckage, no nothing. So... We just had to uh, hope that something was keeping them afloat because if you were just in the water, it was like watching the um, 
boats in the Sydney Hobart in that fateful race. You know, the, the wind and the uh, the swell, they're just, they're just endless. I had it set in my mind that there was probably no chance of anyone surviving in the water in those conditions. At 9.15am, and the police launch Stackpole was following a radar signal eight miles away, the five castaways were in the water, and the nocturne was minutes from sinking. The survivors were clinging on as best they could to the bottom of the nocturne's capsized dinghy, digging their fingers between the ridges on the hull. Waves came and ripped them away, and they struggled back to whatever safety the dinghy afforded. At one stage, Bill turned to Fred Markwell and asked, So, what do we do now? The skipper didn't answer. We all kept getting knocked about a bit by this dinghy hanging onto the side in the waves, and uh, and he eventually said, I'm going, and off he went. He just let go of it, and when I say let go of it, he didn't come back when he got washed away. He just said, I'm going. I remember the rope. He had a big piece of rope with him. It was hanging off the side of him as he went away in the storm. Soon after Markwell's departure, the nocturne finally sank. The stern stood skyward and bobbed ponderously several times, looming over them before it disappeared beneath the waves. The Morans were so close to the wreck, they were sucked over the sinking boat and debris. With Markwell gone, Bill and Ray thought they stood a better chance in the dinghy. It might be more stable with only four. So Bill set about writing it. So you saw Bill write the boat. That must have been a tremendous effort at that stage. Yeah, I helped him. How did you do it? Just pulled it over with the wave sort of thing. I don't remember any difficulties or anything. Don't remember it being hard. It wasn't a very big dinghy. However, as the boys were doing this, Maria was swept from the group. Soon she was 50 metres away and too exhausted to make it back to the dinghy. Maria just didn't have the energy to get back. Ray was faced with an impossible choice. The dinghy seemed to offer the best chance of survival, but going with Bill and Pip would mean leaving his wife behind. It was no choice at all. So I said to Pip and Bill, I'll I'll stay with Maria. Well, I thought I had to help Maria because she's not that strong a swimmer. She's a good swimmer, but she wasn't that strong. And I thought, well, that's my wife. I've got to go help her. Well, it was very confusing because it happened so quickly. I just couldn't get back to the dinghy to hold on to the side again. And the waves just swept me away. And I, I always thought he'd come and get me. At the same time, your sister and Bill are in the dinghy. What was the look on their face? What was their demeanour at this moment as they're leaving you two behind and leaving in the dinghy? I think sadness on their faces. Just sadness to see Ray and I. Worry, I suppose. Yeah. What did the dinghy represent? Well, that was our last survival... Well, not our last survival chance. I mean, we still had vests on, but it was a ship, it was a boat, it was something to hang on to. I actually thought when Pip and Bill went off in the dinghy, I actually said to Maria, oh, well, they're safe now. I thought they'd be fine. You know, they'll go and get help. Because you've got to remember at this stage, we still don't know if anybody knows we're out there. For the next 40 minutes, Ray and Maria caught glimpses of Bill and Pip in the dinghy as they crested the huge swells. Bill was bailing with a piece of wood and was keeping them afloat. Later in the coroner's court, 
Senior Constable Paul Craggs was asked what chance the dinghy stood in those seas. Well, that's absolute zero because the uh, the white water on top of the swells was even bigger than the length of the dinghy. You know, there, there was absolutely no way that the dinghy would have stayed afloat. Well, if it had sufficient flotation, it may, but there's no way in the world it would have remained upright. It would have just been blown along over and over. The only thing that the dinghy would have given them was, would have been something to hold on to while they were in the water, maybe, but they'd have been battered and bashed. They'd have never been able to hang on to it. Somehow Bill was doing the impossible, perhaps by sheer force of character and a body honed in rugby league and endurance horse riding. He was keeping the dinghy both upright and afloat. Well, anyone that was able to do that would have been a superman. And if he did, I commend him wholeheartedly for that, for his bravery. But yeah, I'd say that the dinghy was always doomed. The last Ray and Maria saw of them, Bill seemed to be winning. They were heading downwind fast, northwards with the storm at their backs. The dinghy was stable and was surfing down the face of a wave. With Bill and Pip gone, Ray's focus turned to his and Maria's survival. So how did you survive, you two? (laughs) God's will, I think. I slowly built a raft. There was a wooden seat that was on the back of the boat that came off and I turned that in like upside down so it was shaped like a triangle and put some um, gas bottles that were floating around underneath that. So we hung on to that for the rest of the time. We were told sometimes the swell reached 25 foot, but, you know, it was only just sort of the top of the wave that would break when the wind had hit it. It wasn't like you were getting tumbled around a lot, but every now and then you did. We, you know, have lived near the surf all our lives. And you know when you're little and you're playing in the surf and you go, oh, that third wave's going to be a big one, you know? So that's kind of what we went back to, really. Strangely enough, Ray and Maria felt calmer when their boat and the dinghy were gone and they were floating on their makeshift raft. As the hours passed, a few moments of doubt crept in. I don't know how long we'd been in the water, but it was a fair while, and I was starting to wonder about whether we are going to get any help. And then I saw this tanker. I mean, they're big, big things, but it wasn't that far away, and I thought if I could let off a flare, they might see it but the flares that we had had already got soaked in the ocean and just didn't work that must have been a moment of desolation for you it it was a little bit was a little bit because i was relying on using them at the right time i grabbed two of them when when we left the boat after several hours in the ocean the early signs of hypothermia were coming on ray and maria felt rushes of warmth pass over their legs and they edged their raft towards what they believed to be warmer currents. This was just a delusion, they discovered later. And um, by that time, our vests we were wearing were actually pulling us underwater. They'd got soaked. They were the old um, polystyrene sort of material. The sea search for the nocturne was suspended at 10am when Senior Constable Paul Craggs aboard the police launch Stackpool had reluctantly returned to Evans Head. Conditions had made any seaborne rescue completely impossible. Salvation could only come from above, from divine intervention or the Royal Australian Air Force. 
The Stackpool had just tied up at Evans' head when Paul Craggs heard the message over the radio. The crew of the P3 Orion had seen wreckage and survivors in the water. And I was thinking, how could anybody have survived and let aircraft find them? And they were using our positions that we'd given them. And I was thinking, oh, thank God for that. The rescue operation is still a rescue operation. Despite all the grave fears, it becomes another rescue. And I'd taken my vest off and I was waving and waving it to the plane. And that's how they saw us. Then he took off, gave us a thumbs up and I said to Maria, gee, I hope they send a helicopter and not a boat because I think we're a fair way out. <laughs> Well, I'm Angus Houston. Uh, back in September 1979, I was the captain of the search and rescue uh, aircraft at Amberley. We were on a short notice to move and we were called out and we flew down to Evans Head. Flight Lieutenant Angus Houston later became Air Chief Marshal Sir Angus Houston and Chief of the Australian Defence Force. He was awarded the Air Flying Cross, the highest award for a military pilot in peacetime for his actions that day. We had been there uh, most of the day and it was uh, towards the late afternoon uh, when a P3, which had been called into the search at late notice, found people in the water and some wreckage and uh, dropped smoke floats. So uh, we were called out. We could respond very, very quickly because we were, uh, we were all set up to go. We jumped into the helicopter, uh, did our checks and took off. And then we were guided to uh, the area where the people were in the water and they were above us. And um, they guided us into where the survivors were in the water by reference to the smoke floats. And uh, because there was so much uh, white water, there was an awful lot to excite the eye. Ray had got his helicopter just in the nick of time. Just about before the helicopter arrived, a great big shark started swimming around us, eating all the rubbish off the boat. You know, the, the apples and the um, milk and things like that. And that was a bit, oh no. <laughs> this is what we need. Lieutenant Houston's report on that day told the story. 15 minutes after entering the search area and at 200 feet, we saw the first survivor. I directed the crewman, Corporal Russell, to deploy the hoist and lower Corporal Roman to walk him along the top of the water. Finding people in the water in those conditions is uh, incredibly demanding. But once we... We locked on to the first survivor. We went into the hover, a reasonably high hover. A normal hover would normally be about 30 feet. As I recall it, we were about 50 feet. And um, we were at that height because of the, uh, the size of the, uh, the seas. There were enormous waves and uh, it was still blowing uh, pretty hard. We, uh, we put Sandy Roman down on the, uh, the winch and Dave Russell basically gave me directions as to how we were going in terms of our position over the, uh, over the survivor. 
one of the challenges in those conditions is holding a, a stable hover. Fred Markwell was the first to be found. He was just 200 metres from Ray and Maria Moran. As Corporal Roman tried to reach Markwell, the airman was smashed by a wave and knocked senseless for a few seconds. I was actually going towards him when it happened. I remember seeing it happen, yeah. Roman was reeled back out of the maelstrom to recover. He soon regained his composure and was lowered again, and this time plucked the exhausted skipper from the sea. Then Houston and the crew of the helicopter scoured the sea for Ray and Maria. Upon sighting the other two survivors, Corporal Roman was again lowered into the sea, and upon reaching Maria Moran, she grabbed him around the throat and the corporal had to break her grip before she could be placed in a rescue sling and lifted into the aircraft. Once Maria was in the aircraft, Corporal Roman was again lowered into the ocean where he rescued her husband. Finally, after six hours in the water, the castaways were safe. The people that we pulled up were still okay, although they were incredibly cold. They were obviously suffering from the cold. I think we probably rescued them um, just in time. Obviously, there's a lot of relief to be saved. I do remember thinking, did I have the right direction for land and looking at that. Um, I kept that in my head all the time. But I, I think just plain relief. With three survivors on board, Houston then focused on finding Bill and Pip Moran. We asked Fred Markle, where are the other two? And he said, oh, they jumped into a dinghy very early this morning before the boat broke up. And uh, the last thing we saw of them was uh, them disappearing downwind at high speed. And we never saw them again. So I thought, oh, well, um, that was obviously several hours prior to that. We then went downwind and we did a, uh, a search where we went from one side to the other across where the most probable track would have been. So uh, we did this for um, oh, probably half an hour or so. We were then getting low on fuel and uh, we flew into Ballina and dropped the uh, survivors off close to the Ballina Hospital. Ray and Maria expected that Bill and Pip had already made it to safety in the dinghy. Maybe they'd raised the alarm and that was why they'd been saved. They didn't know that Bill and Pip were still on the ocean. Not until we got to the hospital, I think, then we realised that they were still out there. They were both such strong people, you know, like they were very healthy. Young. Young, and they had all that, and you were kind of thinking, oh, they're in that boat, like they'll survive, you know. Fred Markwell didn't expect to see Ray and Maria again and told Ray to his face in the hospital. I was in the same room as him. He was in bed when, lying in bed, and I was getting up to go to see Maria in her room, and uh, that's when he said it to me. He said, oh, I was surprised to see you made it, Ray. The girls were panicking so much. For Maria, Markwell's comments were the last straw. I think he handled it very badly. You know, when you look at it, it was really Ray and Bill that were doing all the thinking about what they had to do, doing the things manually. I can't even remember him coming down and talking to us or because um, Pip and I were together together. Um, sitting by the radio, and 
then afterwards when we'd been rescued and he uh, came up to Ray and said, oh, you know, I had to get away from you. The girls were panicking and I, I don't know. It was just this uh, unbelievable that someone could just think of themselves and not everybody on board. He abandoned us. Had Ray not put the radio back together, had not Bill and Ray done what they did with the mask, I don't think we would have made it. The search for two people missing in an aluminium dinghy off the north coast will resume at dawn today. The missing couple, Mr William Moran, 24, and Mrs Philippa Moran, 21, were among five people forced to abandon their cabin cruiser in rough seas on Monday morning. Ray and Maria were not about to abandon Bill and Pip. They spent one night in hospital regaining their core temperature and then joined the search. We were asked if we wanted to go out on the search because, you know, there are a lot of small planes going up. So Ray and I went up and searched in the little plane ourselves and um, just remember looking at that water thinking, my godfather, like... It It was a new day. Yeah, it was flat as a board. There was no waves. The sun was bright. But it was so hard to see anything. You kept thinking, oh, yeah, I saw something. And then you'd get closer and it, it wasn't anything. You know, it was just the light on the water. We saw some remains of the boat, the roof still floating. Yeah. A flotilla of boats searched for Bill and Pip. Two P-3 Orions, a Hercules, an Iroquois helicopter and four commercial aircraft scanned the sea from Evans Head to Stradbroke Island in Queensland and about 60 nautical miles out to sea. Two days after the nocturne sank, Maria received the sad news that her sister had perished. The body of a 21-year-old woman missing since the cruise and nocturne sank in rough seas on Monday has been found on South Kingscliff Beach on the far north coast. The body of Mrs Philippa Moran was found face down on the water's edge about 100 kilometres north of where she was last seen. The dinghy also washed up on Kingscliff Beach about 500 metres north of where Pip was found at 7.45 in the morning. Mrs Moran's 24-year-old husband, Bill. In the days after Pip's body was recovered, more from the wreck washed up on the beach, including a searchlight, some furniture, most of the superstructure and the nameplate of the vessel. And Maria's message in a bottle that gave the nocturne's precise position as 15 miles off Evan's head. Bill's brother Martin Moran travelled up to Kingscliff with his family to join the search. So we finished up. There was three card loads of us. We picked up more in Tamworth, headed out there, met the uh, the lifeguard. He showed us around and we started searching. Yeah, yeah. I just remembered something else now too. What's that? The next day there was a lot of money swept up on the beach. It was in notes. Huh. From the boat, do you think? That's what we thought. In the material reviewed for this case, there's no record of money being found. Martin is adamant this happened. So, if anyone has information on this, please contact the Missing Persons Registry at State Crime Command. The official search was abandoned on September 27th, three days after the nocturne went down. The matter was passed to the Sydney Water Police and William John Moran was listed as a missing person. On October 4th, Philippa Rose Moran was laid to rest in the Catholic Cemetery at Nelson Bay, the place where Pip and Bill had planned their future together on the Nocturne, only to be parted before it had begun. The epitaph recorded that the body of her loving husband William was lost at sea. 
Then in 2011, Bill's jawbone appears on the beach within a few metres of where Pip's body washed up. And this on the same date as the tragedy 32 years earlier. They perished together on that fearful day and now they are to be reunited. Bill's remains can be buried alongside his beautiful wife. You could say that against all odds, Bill found a way home. And this summer, there's another Moran male working the waters of Nelson Bay. The young man whose DNA sample in jail was the key to solving this mystery, well, he's decided to follow the late Bill Moran to sea. He's taken a job working on the fishing boats. In episode four of Lost at Sea, we'll review this case with current day water police investigators to understand why Bill Moran's remains stayed hidden for so long and how close Bill and Pip got to reaching safety. We'll also lay some credit where it's due for the chain of people that made this amazing rescue possible. State Crime Command Investigations is a production of Podcast One Australia in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force. Written and produced by Adam Shan. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer, Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Additional editing by Martin Peralta.